Um, before we begin, let's just say a little prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for another day of life today. I really pray that as I speak this message, I pray that my words may be yours and not my own. I pray that you grant us your Holy Spirit. May you guide us and lead us into all truth. May we find a blessing from your word today. Thank you, Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen. <coughs> so, <coughs> humans love entertainment, really, when you think about it. And that love for entertainment, just as much as it can be seen today, can be seen all the way out throughout history. For example, as we've got on the screen, the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks loved drama. They loved theatre. And one of the most notable theatres that they had was the Epidaurus Theatre. I think that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, it was a beautiful theatre with a scenic backdrop, as you can see there. In the centre of the stage, if you were to light a match, if it didn't matter really anywhere where you were sitting in the audience, you could hear that match perfectly. That's the kind of acoustics that the, the Greeks put into this theatre. And they say that it had a capacity of around 14,000 people. So a fairly, fairly decent sized theatre. In Rome, of course, you had the mighty Colosseum. Now, the Colosseum was the largest amphitheatre in all the Roman Kingdom. And it could do a variety of things. But what I find interesting is it's the fact that they could actually fill the Colosseum up with water. And what they would do is they would pretty much get little boats and they would fake mock navy battles right there in the Colosseum. But people all sat around and watched. Incredible, really, when you think about it, how long ago this was. And they say that this stadium, this Colosseum, could fit around 50,000 people. It's, yeah, it's incredible, if you really ask me, in my opinion. And then, of course, we've got London. There's many theatres in London. But one of the most notable and most grand would have to be the Royal Opera House. Um, as the name suggests, it's the home of the Royal Ballet and the Royal Opera. And during its time, it has housed many, many famous ballets and plays and composers. For example, this theatre held the first rendition of um, Handel's Messiah. This is held right here in the Opera House. I thought that was a really interesting fact. Then, of course, right here in Australia, we have the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. It's, it was established in 1853. It's the biggest sports stadium we have in Australia. And they say it can seat just over around 100,000 people, which is a considerable amount. It's famous for many things, but most notably, one of the most famous things that it is famed for is um, it's essentially the birthplace of Test Cricket. So if any Test Cricket fans are out there, you have the MCG to thank for that. And to many people in Australia, and specifically in Melbourne, it is known as the beating heart of the city. Humans love their entertainment. And then, of course, you've got the king of cinema, the king of theatre today, which is Hollywood. As you can see there, that is the famous Chinese theatre in Hollywood Boulevard, Los Angeles. I've had the pleasure of actually being there. It is, it is quite nice. It's a grand theatre. Very popular, so you just have to quickly kind of take a photo and move on because there's so many people there. But today, this is what we call entertainment. So from the Greek theatre to the Hollywood movie, humans have always loved the stadium and the stage. But although these stages are quite grand and large in scale, I would like to suggest to you all today that there is an even grander stage. Shakespeare once said that all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts. 
So Shakespeare suggested that the entire world was a stage. And it reminds me of something Paul said. So if you all have your Bibles with you, could you all turn to 1 Corinthians 4.9? Or if not, you can read it on the screen. And it says this, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men, condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So yeah, that's in 1 Corinthians. So, some commentators suggest that the imagery Paul is trying to convey here is that of gladiators in a Roman arena, or if you would like, the Colosseum. So just, just imagine this picture for a second. In the middle of the Colosseum, there's a gladiator, and 50,000 people are all gazing at what this man or these group of individuals are doing. They are the center of attention to a huge crowd of people. And Paul is using this imagery, this analogy, and comparing it to the Christian life experience, which I think is very interesting. So, what, what, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that as Christians, we are a spectacle to the world, but not only to men, but also to angels. In other words, we are the central players in this theatre of the universe. And like the gladiators in the Colosseum, we are also involved in a conflict, a battle, if you will. We are involved in a battle between good and evil, a conflict between Christ and Satan, a conflict called the Great Controversy. But unlike the, the gladiators in the Colosseum, this battle that we are facing is not with flesh and blood. So in Ephesians 6.12, and if you want to look it up in the Bibles, if not the screen, it says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So this is a spiritual battle with the earth as a center stage for this conflict, with the entire universe looking in. Quite the, the spectacle, if you ask me. So what, what controversy? What is this controversy all about? Well, I think there's an Ellen White quote in the, the Great Controversy that really summarizes this perfectly. It says this, It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the Great Controversy. His sophistry lessens the obligation of the divine law and gives men license to sin. At the same time, he causes them to cherish, cherish sorry, false conceptions of God so that they regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. As almost all of us are probably aware, this controversy is over God's character, law, and sovereignty. It all began in heaven when the angel Lucifer in self-exaltation tried to rise up against God when he became the devil and Satan, God's adversary. And he started an open rebellion against God and his way of ruling the government, uh, the universe or the government of heaven, if you will, ultimately claiming that he could do a better job than God himself. And so after Adam and Eve fell, after they committed that sin, they actually gave up the world to Satan. And this earth that we see around us today is the center for Satan's rebellion against God. And what we see, the results, the effects, um, yeah, that is what the efforts of Satan has actually brought on. And in the Bible, there's a story that really illustrates this um, theme perfectly, I feel. It's in Job. So if you would all like to turn to Job chapter 1, then we'll read from verses 6 to 12. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all, around all that he has? On every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, that is in your power. And so on. We know how the story goes in from there. As I said before, there was a big meeting in heaven, and Satan came to earth, claiming that he was to heaven, sorry, claiming that he was the prince of this world. But God does something interesting. He simply points to Job and suggests that Satan should reconsider his claims. And we know the rest of the story. Satan throws all kinds of calamities and attacks at Job, bringing him innumerable amounts of pain and misery, attacks against himself, his family, his livestock, everything. But throughout all of this misery and pain, Job remains faithful to God. What a powerful witness, eh? The whole world, as it were, was looking at this, this one man, Job, defying the devil. And because of this, God proved a really, really powerful point. The universe could see that God still, in a sense, did have loyal and faithful servants, Job, on this earth. And even though Satan was the prince of this world, Jesus was the king. I think that's really powerful. So, when watching a movie, I know I have, have you ever been so engrossed in it, or a play, or a theatre, or a drama, that you actually forget it's a movie? It's such a good story, the actors are so well, that you kind of forget that it's not real life, it's a movie? I've done that before. And then all of a sudden, something draws you out of it. Maybe the special effects are kind of bad, or someone breaks the fourth wall, you know, when they start speaking to the audience. It kind of stands out, doesn't it? So as I mentioned before, in year 11, I had the awesome opportunity to be in a drama. I was a very small role, very, I wasn't brave or good enough to be the lead, lead actor. But um, yeah, I had a small extra little piece of this play, as you saw the picture before. And I'll tell you what, if, if I was keeping in mind that I was a very small part, if I was just the one day during seeing a live presentation of the act, just to get out my phone and start walking around the set while everyone else was acting, and talk really loudly to a friend amongst everything, that would kind of seem weird, wouldn't it? Unexpected. The thing about actors is they know that they are being watched and they act accordingly, especially during a live play. And so if they do something, even the most smallest detail out of the norm, if they do something that's not in the theme of the, the play or the drama, it really stands out. And I find it interesting how Often we forget that as Christians, we are being watched too. Like actors on a stage, we are a spectacle to men and angels, as Paul said. We are the light of the world. The whole universe is looking at this earth that we call, this center stage that we call earth. Now some may view this as a frightening reality. I mean, like your whole life is being watched. That's a bit uh, terrifying. But I think you, you and myself would all agree that this is not a healthy way to live. It's not healthy to live your life saying, oh man, I'm being watched, what am I going to do? 
I think Job brings this point even further home. When you think of Job, he was completely unaware what was happening behind the scenes in the heavens. He was just living his life unbeknownst that Satan was attacking him and this whole controversy was happening in heaven. And I think that's in the Bible for a very good reason. I don't think God wants us to live terrified every day that we are this, on the center stage. However, I do think he gives us the story of Job to tell us that we should, we should be aware of this reality, this reality of good and evil, this spiritual battle that is going on around us. Although I don't think we should worry over it. So it's kind of finding that right balance between being aware of it and not being afraid. And I think we should put a positive spin on it as well. We should look at this opportunity as a witnessing opportunity, like Job. Job was a powerful witness to the universe. And if we are at the center stage, this theater of the universe, and we're the central players, let's use this as an opportunity to share the love of God. I think that's really powerful. And in the Bible, we find a story that when you really think about it, is just a microcosm for the great controversy. I find it really interesting. It's a story of the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. So if you would like to turn to Mark chapter 5, I'll just give a summary of the story, but you can follow along. So we probably all know the story. Jesus crosses over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then he meets this demoniac, this man, who is possessed with many, many demons. That's why he says his name is Legion. Now, a, a legion in that day and age was known to be an army of Roman soldiers, around 6,000 in number. So really, essentially, this man had 6,000 demons possessing him, which makes sense when you see how the Bible describes him. So the Bible describes him as being crazy, extremely strong. So they would try and chain this man up with chains and fetters around his ankles and his wrists, but he would just snap them off, he would break free. Um, at night, he would cut himself whether it be with, I don't know, rocks or swords or whatever, and he would scream out. And I was reading some commentary about this. And the scream, the commentator described it as kind of like an ungodly high shriek, just this really weird, freaky sound. And this is what the, the locals came to know of, the demoniac, this man called Legion. And so I'm sure when Jesus and the disciples are stepping out of the boat and this man starts coming up towards them, the disciples would have been a bit frightened. But Jesus isn't. He simply walks up to him and confronts this man. And one of the first things the demons say to this man is, do not torment us, God. Do not torment us. And they beg Jesus to send, the, the demons beg him to send them into a herd of pigs residing nearby. And Jesus allows it. And we know what happens from there. The pigs possessed by the demons run off in a frenzy and jump off a cliff. And the, the farmers of the pigs the pig farmers or pig herders, whatever you want to call them, they go back to the town and they, they tell everyone what had happened. That this man, he just released these demons. And so all the town comes essentially. And instead of welcoming Jesus, thanking him for getting rid of this, this problem, this demon-possessed man, they're terrified. They say, go away, we don't want you here. And so Jesus and his disciples, they leave. But I want to get to a part of the story that I think is very interesting. So at this point, Oh, I should also make this point too. If you analyze this story, as I said before, it's kind of like a microcosm for the great controversy. It's so fascinating because there's a few elements of it in here that we can find. First of all, God's sovereignty is in display. So we see here Jesus having power over nature and over the demonic forces, casting them into the pigs. 
And in a sense, that's Christ's first blow to Satan. He releases this man of the possession. But then the demons kind of fight back and they go and get the pigs to jump off the cliff, which in turn makes the villagers and the pig farmers, they want Jesus to leave. It causes fear in the hearts of the world to go. And so it kind of looks like Satan has won this little battle. Because all Jesus has done essentially, although it's awesome, he's freed one man, but he's lost an entire town. And so you're kind of wondering, what's, what's happening here? And also, God's character is involved in this as well. Because, as I said before, the demons came up to Jesus and said, don't torment us. So that implies, in my mind, that the demons thought Jesus not to be a God of love, but to be a tormentor of some kind. So here you find this little conflict. But let's all turn now to Mark 5, verse 18. Oh, sorry, Mark 5, chapter 5. And we'll read from verses 18 to 20. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. So he, you start to get the picture that what this demoniac did when he went back to the town made a really big difference. All the town marveled. And I want to share with you a little insight that Ellen White gives us in Desire of Ages. Yeah, uh, there we go. Desire of Ages. She says this, Those who have been mediums of the Prince of Darkness became channels of light, messengers of the Son of God. Men marveled as they listened to the wondrous news. A door was opened to the gospel throughout that region. When Jesus returned to the capitalists, the people flocked about him. And for three days, not merely the inhabitants of one town, but thousands from all the surrounding region heard the message of salvation. Even the power of demons is under the control of our Savior, and the working of evil is overall for good. So this is really incredible, I think. So in the end, it seems like Satan has kind of won the day. But Jesus, in his all wisdom, he sends a demoniac back, who spreads his message across the town. And lo and behold, when Jesus comes back, not only that town, but thousands from all around a witness, uh, a saved through Jesus' message because of what that demoniac had done. I think that's so cool. And I think there's an even bigger lesson here for us in the theme of the great controversy. So the demoniac knew the truth about Jesus. He was the one, one of the rare few in that situation that did. He knew Jesus to be a loving savior. Um, someone who stopped, had compassion on him and lift him, lifted him from his oppressors, from his burden that he was, he was feeling at the time. And he went back and he shared that. But I think what's interesting is he didn't really want to. He kind of wanted to stay to Jesus. He was content knowing that he had been saved. He had this wonderful truth about God, but he didn't want to share it. So he was fine with that, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus wanted the demoniac, the demoniac to go back and tell everyone the awesome news, what he had done for him. And as we saw, the demoniac did, and what a powerful witness he was. To Jesus and vindicating the character of Jesus, if you will. Many historians today suggest that the greatest contribution Ellen White made to the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the Great Controversy theme. They describe this theme as a tying thread that really brings together her thoughts and her ideas and her writings. And our church has been greatly blessed by this theme, if you, if you ask me. 
And at the heart of the great controversy, as we have seen, is this theme of the revelation of the love of God, as seen primarily at the, the cross, essentially, when Jesus gave his life. It was the climax of the great controversy. But I find it interesting, like the demoniac, we have this awesome truth to share about God's love, and yet we aren't compelled to share it. There's nothing wrong with staying with Jesus in the boat. I don't think the demoniac was doing anything wrong. But Jesus has called us not to stay in the boat, but to get out of the boat. He wants us to go back to the town and to share this awesome truth. And I think we, we the church, have missed opportunity time and time again because we love this truth so much, but we want to keep it to ourselves. But we need to share it. I think that's what we can gather from the story. So we are the central players in the theater of the universe. And we as Christians have a crucial part to play. We are to point people to the cross, the ultimate portrayal and the climax of the love of God. And in doing so, to win souls to the kingdom. The demoniac had a crucial role to play. And I believe we as a, we as a church also have a crucial role to play. But not only as a church, but I think individually as well. Individually, we all have an experience with Jesus. We know his love. And so each one of us has a role to play, likewise. And according to Paul, we are all spectacles to men and to angels. So that leaves us with a very important question. If we are the players in this theater of the universe, what are we going to do? How are we going to live our lives in this great conflict, this great spiritual battle? What role are we going to play? Thank you.